0: with me in your bibles please to 1st peter chapter 1 we'll read verses 20 and 21 this morning here now the inerrant infallible and inspired word of god who, that is Christ, verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who by him do believe in God, that raised him up from the dead and gave him glory, that your faith and hope might be in God. May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his most holy word. The quotation this morning is from the Reverend James Durham. Even as a sick man who, hearing, as we hinted before, that a physician who is skillful and able to cure him has come to town, he becomes glad in hopes of a cure of his disease. But here is the obstacle. When the physician tells the man that he must be so and so abstemious, that is self-denying, and keep himself under such a strict diet, he will not obey, and so all his joy vanishes. There is something like this in the temporary faith, where some remote expectation of salvation will raise a carnal joy and gladness, but when it comes to this, that a man is called to quit his lusts or his estate or in the world to undergo trouble and persecution for the gospel, by and by he is offended. He thinks, to say so, a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. They therefore. When the storm blows in his teeth, he turns back and runs away. We find this often in people that, when sick, they have fits of seriousness and sometimes flashes of sorrow under convictions and sometimes flashes of joy that vanish when they come to health again. When we speak of some common work on the affections, we mean, among other things, some liberty and warmness of spirit in prayer which... No question, even unrenewed men may find more at one time than another, as when they are in some great hazard or strait, they will be more than ordinarily serious in that duty. Yet, this may be but an effect of nature. Thus far, James Durham, if you have never read his 72 sermons upon Isaiah 53, or it's called The Marrow of the Gospel... I would recommend that to you. Yeah, 72 sermons on Isaiah 53, that's correct. And every one of them jam-packed full of wonderful divinity. All right, so in our study thus far of saving faith, we have been through much in our larger catechism together. We've looked at several things. In the last part of our study now, we have been looking at cheap imitations of saving faith. In the first week, we looked at devil faith, or as it were, we called it trembling faith. And we saw that there was a proper trembling and an improper trembling as well. And if you don't remember the difference between those two, let me briefly remind you. And that is that one trembles at judgment, the other trembles uh, because of deserving judgment and of the great distance between us and our God and Savior yet does not deny the faithfulness of Christ to forgive. So it is more in the distance between God and us that the trembling is found. Moses himself said, I exceedingly fear and quake, right? So the second thing that we looked at was temporary faith. And that is that faith which does not last. Durham spoke a little bit of that in this quotation that we just read. And we've said that one of the prime... Uh, evidences of saving faith is that it perseveres to the end. Any faith that comes short, no matter how intense, no matter how sincere, is not saving faith. There are those who seem to be, uh, as we used to say back in our evangelical days, on fire for the Lord. Yet that fire we've seen also in many go out. Then the third, which is what we looked at last week, we called it miracle faith. And we saw how that there are many false assurances because of remarkable providences, even extraordinary events or miracles, coincidences, if you will, that people think themselves blessed by the Lord and renewed thereby. But we also saw that the ability to perform miracles Or to receive miracles is itself not saving faith. There were ten lepers cleansed, yet only one returned to give glory to God. Okay, so with that then, I want to move on now to another study. uh, The fourth kind of of, uh, imitation of saving faith. And I want to call this far enough faith. Far enough. I've gone far enough I've gone the distance that I need to travel there are many that believe that because they have done this or that crossed this or that threshold or rubicon or river if you will no matter what barrier you want to make is that which has been crossed they make the barrier something other than what it truly is they erect or are fooled into believing some false notion rather than closing with Christ, rather than going the distance to him. We've talked about this before. We've talked about it as a kind of threshold faith. That's one name that we've given it here. It is, I believe, the majority report among Christians these days. There's a, there's a thing that someone will tell you that you need to do. And if you've done that, you're safe. We have a name for that in theology. We call it sacerdotalism. What does that mean? What is sacerdotalism? That is the belief in the saving efficacy of any kind of sacrament. The saving efficacy of a sacrament. That if you can just, as Rome would describe it, get the bread in your mouth. Or if you can be baptized in that Romish church and according to their teaching you are forgiven original sin original sin is washed away at your baptism they will say simply by virtue of doing it you've crossed the line now you're safe may i say beloved as we've described before it is not just rome that has her sacraments these kinds of sacerdotal Systems. These things exist in evangelical circles as well. And by evangelical, we mean the opposite of sacerdotal, right? In other words, we're saved not by the efficacy of a sacrament, but by believing the gospel, evangelical in that sense, right? The, the, the old term evangelical, you know, the, the original reformers and the, especially the second generation, they were called evangelicals by the sacerdotal party because they were gospel believers rather than sacrament believers. Well now here in far enough faith what many churches that are that perhaps have evangelical in the name have done is they have erected a sacerdotal efficacy instead and this is a part of their quote far enough faith. What are those sacraments and I use that in quotations what are those sacraments that come up well in the uh, in the charismatic churches it may be speaking in tongues you've spoken in tongues you have the spirit you're safe in more broadly evangelical churches it may be that you've prayed the sinner's prayer you've asked Jesus into your heart you know he was standing there at the door and knocking and you opened up to him in that sense and because you've done that not communed with him but because you've done that you're safe it may be that you've joined the church you've rededicated your life to christ a dozen or so times it may be that you've shaken the pastor's hand he's visited you in your home or it may be that you've done something that is a witness to your saving faith, and so here is this thing that you're hanging on to, and you say, this is far enough. I've gone that distance. I was telling the elders before our our service today when we were getting ready to pray that uh, over these last few days I have developed an illustration I think will help you to understand what we're talking about here. So let's say that you're a, uh, and I would never say this of any of you, but let's say that maybe someone in our midst is an unscrupulous competitor. He doesn't care about breaking the rules, he only cares about winning. And he's in a, say, a running race, maybe, maybe a, like a, a cross country race where, the, where the, the course is spread out over a long distance, right? And if I was an unscrupulous competitor and wanted to win at any cost, then here's what I would do. I would erect, I'd get there the night before, and I would erect a false finish line. And so everybody starts running the race, and we're all running together, and I want to make sure I'm just staying, you know, right up there toward the front. I don't need to be in the lead but then we get to this false finish line, which is where the true finish line is just out of sight. Just a little bit out of sight, so that it's not too far away, but it's far enough away that everyone's eyes loom, or, or, or this false finish line looms in everyone's eyes instead. And they cross that finish line and they stop. And I keep running, and I make it to the end of the race. And I get the prize. Beloved, the enemy of your souls is all about erecting false finish lines so that you'll stop short of closing with Christ and rolling the eternal disposition of your soul upon him and his righteousness alone. There are these false lines finish lines that we've talked about a sacrament some system some thing that you take hold of instead of christ so i'd like to speak with you about that for a few moments from the bible Um, the other thing that i want to say and i'm putting the uses up front because we're a little bit short on time today but i want to put the uses up front here the bible speaks beloved of the Christian life as a race the illustration that we just had it's not completely out of line with the scriptures turn with me to first Corinthians chapter 9 for a moment and we'll look at what the apostle will say in that great passage beginning in verse 24 Know ye not that they which run in a race run all, but one receiveth the prize? So run that ye may obtain. And every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. I therefore so run, not as uncertainly. So fight I not as one that beateth the air, but I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means, when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. The word castaway there is the Greek word adokimos. It's otherwise translated in the New Testament as reprobate. Notice that if there are those who might have been tempted to believe some false finish, the Apostle Paul had great reason to believe that. He preached to others. He's a minister of the gospel, and not just any minister, but although he calls himself one of the least of the apostles, we might call him one of the chief. There are 14 books in the New Testament, if we count the book of Hebrews, that are ascribed to Paul. 14. You remember how many books there are in the New Testament, children? That's right. More than half are written, are penned by the Apostle Paul. He will say, I labored more abundantly than them all. Yet, what else does he say, lest after having preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. No uh, far enough faith for Paul. No, that's not going to work here, he says. And so we have this race here. Turn to Second Timothy chapter 4. Again, from the inspired apostle. Verse 6. For I am now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown, of righteousness which the Lord the righteous judge shall give me at that day and not to me only but to all them also that love his appearing. We'll note here in 2nd Timothy chapter 4 that the apostle uses the same kind of language that he used in 1st Corinthians 9. Here however perhaps decades later near the end of his earthly life what does he say? Well he's still on the on the understanding of a course, a race, and then also of a, of a mastery contest. Boxing, right? Kind of a boxing match or a pugilistic match where he says, I have fought a good fight. And then what is laid up for him? The Stephanos of glory. Now, don't think that, you know, I, I know that there are some that have said, oh, we're going to get to heaven. We're going to have these crowns. No, no, no. That's not what's being spoken about. It's a figure. The figure is, you have finished the course, you receive the prize, the Stephanos of Doxa, or glory, the crown of glory. What is it? You get to be glorified with Christ. That's the Stephanos. Right? But notice, here he is now at the end of his life, and it is not until this point in his life, That he begins to speak like that. No far enough faith. For the apostle Paul. Not only is it not a temporary faith. But it doesn't stop short. Through some misunderstood. Final uh, ribbon if you will. He's not tricked. Into a false finish line. As many are. There's not some sacrament. Not some magical incantation or prayer that must be uh, uttered in order rightly to be sure that you are uh, safe, in other words. Uh, The Apostle Paul will say to the Romans in chapter 13, I think it's what, verse 11, he will say to them, Your salvation is nearer than when you first believed. What's he he doing there? He's helping them to recognize not to stop short. We must not stop short. Salvation is spoken of often in Scripture. And this used to puzzle me a long time ago before I I understood the the, the greater sweep of things in the Bible. You know, I remember as an evangelical thinking that we're saved when we believe. How can our salvation be nearer than when we first believed if we already get it when we believe? How can it be nearer and possessed at the same time? These are important things to remember because the Bible will speak of our salvation as yet future because we don't want to stop short. Some false finish line. The enemy enemy of our souls is really good at putting up those false finish lines. So it's not simply the belief that God is triune. It's not simply the belief that salvation is by grace alone through faith alone. Many doctrines of the Bible may be confessed, even believed, truly faith comes by hearing. But it's not only by hearing, beloved. We can't rest in hearing only, can we? Again, another false finish line. That's the means by which faith comes. True, true that. But in Ezekiel chapter 30, verses 30 through 33, I'm going to botch the quotation, so I better go ahead and turn there. Chapter 30, verses 30 through 33 reads like this. Well, it's not chapter 30. Because if it was chapter 30, it wouldn't end at 26. Hmm. Okay, it's 33. 33. I actually have to read my notes. There you go. Also, son of man, the children of thy people are still talking against thee by the walls and in the doors of the houses and speak to one another, every one to his brother saying, come, I pray you. Let us hear what is the word that cometh forth from the Lord and they come to thee as the people cometh. And they sit before thee as my people and they hear the, the words of thy mouth. They, they, they hear thy words, but they will not do them, for with their mouth they show much love. But their heart goeth after their covetousness. And lo, thou art unto them as a very lovely song of one that hath a pleasant voice, and can play well on an instrument. For they hear thy words, but they do them not. And when this cometh to pass, lo, it will come. Then shall they know that a prophet hath been among them. Well, hearing is good, but was hearing enough for the disciples that came to Ezekiel in chapter 33? Well, no. No. The gospel is heard by many. Haven't we seen that in Matthew chapter 13? We have. If we turn to uh, Hebrews chapter 11 for a moment, we look at that passage, we'll see some other helpful signs there. But without faith, I'm in verse 6, it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Notice, not at one time had sought him. No, we, we are true seekers, are we not? We don't want to develop a seeker friendly service in that we're thinking that the unchurched are those who are seeking. They're not. A seeker-friendly service is truly those, it is for those who believe. It is only those who believe who are seeking. They've not left off that seeking through some false finish line, in other words. They come to God. They believe that He is. They have confidence in His rewards. They're looking for that Stephanus of glory, and so they run the course as it has been laid out. And they don't stop short. And they don't, you know, in the middle of a lap, cut across the middle of the field so that they can get a half lap lap lead on everyone else. They run, as Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 9, we've already read, lawfully. They strive lawfully, in other words. And so we have this, this belief that God is, the belief that he is a rewarder, but we also have this diligent seeking after him as a mark of true saving faith. It's what saving faith does, beloved. To understand the peril of soul that one is in. And that the only remedy is indeed seeking God through Jesus Christ. And to seek him with all the heart. It is not uh, to seek him only but to rest upon him. To commit yourself unto him. And we've seen that word commit before in Psalm 37 verse 5 where it says, commit your way unto the Lord. And that's that Hebrew word that is translated all over the Old Testament as roll. To roll upon Christ. Let's look also at uh, Psalm 22 for a moment. You'll remember, uh, I think most of you, that Psalm 22 is a, is a psalm that is messianic. You'll remember that we have a, uh, in some cases, almost a word-for-word word description of the crucifixion in Psalm 22. Uh, what the mockers will say of Christ, He trusted in God, let him deliver him, then we'll believe in him, right? That, those kinds of things. Uh, Psalm 22 is all about the crucifixion of Christ and Jesus makes that known himself when he is hanging on the cross and he will begin with Psalm 22, 1. Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, right? Well, let's note what Psalm 22, verse 8 says. Beginning in verse 7, All they that see me laugh me to scorn. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head, saying... He trusted on the Lord that he would deliver him. Let him deliver him, seeing he delighted in him. You know what the word trusted is there? That's the same word that we read of in uh, Psalm 37, 5. He rolled himself upon the Lord. Jesus had this same kind of resting and trusting and rolling upon his Father. It is that by which he said, Into thy hands I commend my spirit. Again from Psalms, right? Psalm 31. For thou hast redeemed me, O Lord God of truth. And then in Proverbs 16. The preparations of the heart in man and the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. All the ways of a man are clean in his own eyes, but the Lord weigheth the spirits. Commit thy works unto the Lord. That's roll. Roll your works upon the Lord. What is being said here? recognize that the things that you do, the good works that you walk in, they are from the Lord. They are that which rises up of your resting in Christ Jesus. This is what's being said there in Proverbs 16. So now turn with me for a moment to Genesis chapter 24. We've used this example before, but I I want to use it once again when we talk about far enough faith or false faith finish lines you got all those f's is that memorable enough (laughs) i hope so far enough faith and false finish lines should be able to remember that what happens here you'll remember that we believe it's eleazar of damascus although he's not named by name but he is the chief servant of abraham that was eleazar of damascus we read about in genesis chapter 17 and so Eleazar, he's sent on an errand to go find a wife for Isaac. Now, I will not be the first guy that has ever said that this, while it is true history, it is also an historical allegory because the father will send out the spirit to find a bride for his son that she may come home to dwell with him forever. Commentator after commentator will make that connection. And so what happens? What does Eleazar do? Well, he travels some interminable distance, right? He goes from where he is in, in the land of promise all the way back to Haran, across the Jordan, across the Euphrates. And here he goes all the way back to Haran to um, Rebekah's people, to Laban and Bethuel, to Abraham's ancestors, the sons of Nahor. And we'll not take the time to see everything that's going on here but there are several things that are that are helpful what does he do he preaches the gospel if you will of his master Isaac my master is rich my master is great my master will deliver you from this household with bethuel and laban and can you imagine to a house of blessing a house that god has blessed in My master Isaac shall all the families of the earth be blessed. They knew that promise because when they sent Rebekah away, they said, may the Lord make you the mother of millions. Remember that? This is the Abrahamic promise. They know what that promise is. They know that God has promised it to Abraham and to his seed. She's being invited to something that is much more than a simple marriage here in the earth, although... It has all of the tokens, right, of something even greater. And so here is the the richness of my master. Here is my here's my my master's uh, the the first fruits of his love. Here are bracelets. Here is gold. Here is silver. Laban, you know, his eyes must have been like saucers, right? And so, what does Laban say? Oh, let the damsel t- stay with us ten days or so. You know. And what does he say? What does Eleazar say? Oh, don't hinder me. We have all confessed here last night that this was from the Lord. Seeing that it's from the Lord then, do not hinder me. Why? Don't make this a false finish line that Rebecca can remain betrothed here for many years and somehow lose her interest. And so what do they do? They turn to Rebecca. Wilt thou go with this man? And what does she say? Yes, I will go with him. She has heard the greatness of Isaac. That he is that child of promise. That in him all of the families of the earth will be blessed. She has also seen the tokens of that richness in that Old Testament way. With the bracelets and the gold and the silver. And she has heard of Isaac's greatness. But beloved, she's not married to him staying in the land of her father's house. She's not married to him even in giving her consent to go. She's not married even if she gets on the camel and goes part way and says the rest is too far. Or somebody sets up a false finish line and says we're in the land of Isaac now. You can stop here. No it's not until they reach the land of Canaan and Isaac is out in the evening meditating, it says. Praying. Praying for the return of the wife that will be the one through whom the families of the world will be blessed. Knowing that Eleazar is on a mission. The trusted servant. Some would put him for the Holy Spirit in the allegory, some would put him for the minister of the gospel in the allegory and so what does she do, she turns to Eleazar and says who's that and Eleazar says that is my master and so immediately off her camel she goes covers her face and her head and humbly goes to Isaac Isaac And they, they go into the tent, the tent of his mother. And it is then that she's married, and not before. Oh, beloved, don't be fooled by false flags of finish. We must go all the way and close with Christ. And a sign of that closure with Christ, as we've read from Paul in 1 Corinthians 9 and 2 Timothy 4, is that we will finish that course It will not be a false stop. I have another passage to open with you before we close this morning's sermon. Turn with me to Psalm 45. You'll remember this right away, some of you. Once again, we have the same pattern here, beloved. We have the same pattern. The pattern is... To preach the greatness of the husband. Listen as we read. My heart is indicting a good matter. I speak of the things which I have made touching the king. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. Thou art fairer than the children of men. Grace is poured into thy lips. Therefore God hath blessed thee forever. Gird thy sword upon thy thigh, O most mighty, with thy glory and thy majesty. And in thy majesty ride prosperously because of truth and meekness and righteousness. And thy right hand shall teach thee terrible things. Thine arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies, whereby the people fall under thee. Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of thy kingdom is a right scepter. Thou lovest righteousness and hatest wickedness. Therefore God, thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. All thy garments smell of myrrh and aloes and cassia out of the ivory palaces whereby they have made thee glad. King's daughters were among thine honorable women. Upon the right hand did stand the queen in gold of Ophir. Who is being described here? Do we have a hermeneutic to help us to understand? Beloved, we do. In Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 8, this very phrase, Thy throne, O God, is forever. And ever the scepter of thy kingdom is a right scepter is applied to the Lord Jesus Christ. We know who we're talking about here. We have an inspired interpretation of who we're talking about here. And so may I ask this question, beloved. Can we carry the hermeneutic just a little bit farther? If the Lord Jesus Christ is set as the king and husband, then who's the queen in gold of Ophir? Well, we're not left to wonder about that either, are we? The bride of Christ in the Old and in the New Testament is nothing other than the church, his people of all time. The invisible church, right? The invisible church, and in these days of administration, we look and it is even, uh, it, it is a right thing to speak about the visible church, at least in some sense, as that bride as well. We don't have two churches. We have one church considered from the divine perspective and then from the human perspective. And who are the members of the invisible church? All the elect that have been, are, or shall be gathered into one under Christ, her head. And so what does the psalmist do then? Well, he does exactly what Eleazar of Damascus did. He begins by proclaiming the greatness of the husband. Except he goes on a little farther than Eleazar ever did here in Psalm 45, doesn't he? What do we hear about our head and husband? Listen, he is fairer than the children of all men. Oh beloved, there is no husband more beautiful than Christ. And he is clothed in the beauty of holiness. His beauty is not in earthly comeliness. For when he came to earth, we remember that Isaiah told us, what? That there is no form or comeliness. That when we see him, we should desire him. No, rather, if you would look at him only from that aspect, he's despised and rejected of men. But it is with the eyes of faith, not of flesh, that we look upon Christ. And when we look upon him, what do we see? He is fairer than the children of men. Secondly, notice, grace is poured into his lips. It is an interesting thing to remember that in Luke chapter 4, when Jesus goes home to his hometown and preaches the gospel in the synagogue there, when he opens up to the prophet Isaiah 61 and verse 1, and he says, The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord hath anointed me to proclaim the gospel to the poor and so on. That all in that congregation that day wondered at the words of grace which proceeded from his mouth. Luke is careful to tell us that. Why? Because this husband that we speak of has grace poured Into his lips. The words of Christ. You know ladies. Sometimes you look for a little comfort from your husbands. Sometimes gentlemen. We're not so good at that. This husband. Grace is poured. Into his lips. He has the words. Of comfort. And truth. That his bride needs. Third. God hath blessed thee. Forever. You thought Isaac was blessed of God. Well, Isaac was a mere type, and he gives up that true blessing when we consider Christ, who is the blessed one forever. Fourth, look at what it says about him Gird thy sword upon thy thigh, O most mighty, with glory, with thy glory and thy majesty. You want A husband that can defend you. That can keep out the enemy. That can protect the house and the estate. None like this husband. None like him. All that the father hath given me shall come to me. And he that comes to me I will in no wise cast out. Then in thy majesty ride Prosperously because of truth and meekness and righteousness. And thy right hand shall teach thee terrible things. And I think that verses 3 and 4 are put together. That it is by the sword that proceeds out of the mouth of Christ. Or to continue the analogy. The sword that is in his right hand. That he goes forth conquering and to conquer. You'll remember the vision of Christ from Revelation chapter 19. And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was faithful and true. And in righteousness doth he, doth he proceed. He makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. On his head are many crowns, and he hath a name written upon his thigh that only he himself knoweth. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treadeth the winepress and the fierceness of the wrath of almighty God. This is our king, our head, our husband. Are you hearing of him? Is his credit going up in your eyes? Is your heart melted toward him? Well, we're not done with Psalm 45 yet. Thine arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemy. Not only does he have a sword, not only does he ride prosperously, not only does his kingdom and estate expand, but his enemies fall in his presence. And I think the enemies here are those who are the king's enemies whereby the people fall under thee. That is, they come under his dominion. He is like that 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 king in Psalm 110 who says of whom it is said that he will rule in the midst, in the inmost parts of his enemies. He makes his enemies his friends. He conquers their hearts to himself. His arrows are sharp in the heart of his enemies, so sharp that they pierce to the sundering of of joint and marrow. Right? Hebrews chapter 4. And what happens? They are brought under his high priesthood. His husbandry. That's verse 5. Then in verse 6, beloved, when we come to Christ as our head and husband, verse 6 tells us that we come to no other than God Himself. That it is God that has condescended to be the bride of His church in Christ Jesus. That it is very God, a very God, whose throne is forever and ever. The scepter of his kingdom is a right scepter. He will never do wrong, but always right. <coughs> Just turn on to any country station and you'll hear about people doing each other wrong. <coughs> not this king, not this head, not this husband. His scepter is a right scepter. <laughs> Notice he loves righteousness and he hates wickedness and he is anointed With the oil of gladness above all that could be called suitors. Above all thy fellows. He is God and man. And therefore suitable as the best of husbands. The best of masters. Then verse 8. All thy garments smell of myrrh and aloes and cassia. Out of the ivory palaces whereby... They have made thee glad. His garments, his provenance, smell of his heavenly origins. His kingdom, his riches, his glory. It is not an earthly and fading glory. No, it is a heavenly glory. And if you thought Eleazar of Damascus had gone a distance, Christ has come from heaven to find to woo, to win, and to receive his bride. But notice that it doesn't stop there. Verse 10. Hearken, O daughter, and consider. Incline thine ear, and forget also thine own people and thy father's house. Did you hear that? Just hearing of the greatness of the king. Our hearts might be stirred. Rebecca's heart might have been stirred that day. The heart of the, of the queen here. Perhaps the queen of Sheba or the queen of Egypt maybe. You know in its historical application with Solomon. Perhaps her heart was stirred but what did the queen of Sheba do beloved? She went home. Right? What did Pharaoh's daughter do? She stayed, but she lived in a separate house. Perhaps one of those women that turned Solomon aside. Notice what it says here. It says, Hearken, O daughter. And consider, incline thine ear, forget also thine own people in thy father's house. Not only is it necessary to get up and leave the house of our parentage, so shall the king greatly desire thy beauty, for he is thy Lord, and worship thou him. That is, put yourself at his feet and serve him with your strength. That is, give yourself to him as your head and your husband And then finally, we will read, we'll not take the time to go there, but in this passage it says, Be brought into his palace. In the metrical version, we add, And there to abide. You see, even here in Psalm 45, then, with this preaching of the greatness of the bride, the bridegroom, the greatness of the prince there is still this warning against stopping short of a far enough faith. I've got the tokens. What if that's all Rebecca said? I have his tokens. That's all I need. Beloved, can you be content with the tokens of Christ without closing with him as your head and husband? Truly it is then to Rest upon him, to roll upon him, to believe in him, to receive him, to follow him, to bow before him. All of those verbs of motion that we talked about. And it is nothing short of that. And the sign that those are rightly undertaken is that when this faith lasts until your last breath on earth. And it's nothing short of that, beloved. And so we must not be duped, we must not be tricked into a false finish line, into something that someone would put in our way to say, if you've crossed this, you've done enough. As we have said before, and I hope to say, perhaps if the Lord give me strength a thousand more times before I pass from this earthly scene, it is not to make a decision for Christ, beloved. It is to make every decision for him because he is our head and our Husband. And we desire more than anything else to please Him. These are the marks of true faith. Not some stop sign along the way. Not some sign under which we might gather. Remember, we've said that before about the sacraments? Right? You're driving down the freeway, here's the sign for Six Flags. And you pull over the car and you get underneath, you get the kids out of the car. The cars are going by. I don't know if you've ever been out on the side of a freeway or not. That's an inhospitable environment, just so you know, if you've never had to do that before. And you say to your children, you look at them now, here we are. We're under the sign. Aren't we having a great time now? Dad, are you sure that's what we're talking about? this is why we drove halfway across town? No. No, it's to walk in the gate. Right? It's to commune with him. Not stop short through some false flag operation where the enemy of your souls would get you to rest in some doing thing. Turn away from all of that, beloved. Don't stop short. Finish the race. There. There. Abide forever. Let's stand and call upon the Lord in prayer. Our dear Heavenly Father, we come unto Thee and we confess that there have been times where we've seen those stop signs, those false finish lines along the way and may even have been tempted to rest our Eternal disposition there. Oh Lord forgive us. Forgive us for. Hearing only. Of the greatness. Of our husband. And not going. Not receiving. Not coming to him. Not abiding in him. Not resting and rolling upon him. Help us Lord not to be content with. Tokens. Tokens. Sacraments. Instead Lord. To commune with Christ Jesus. To know him. And the fellowship of his sufferings. And the power of his resurrection. If by any means we might attain. To the resurrection of the dead. Be with us Lord. That we would not satisfy ourselves in thresholds and gates. But that thou wouldst be with us and bring us all the way to Christ there to abide with Him. O oh Lord, we pray for others in the visible church, where these things are not yet understood, and where false flags and false sacraments are erected to deceive the faithful. Lord, draw them to Christ, be with the ministers of the gospel that they would preach christ and not sacraments and lord we do pray that thou wouldst draw all of thine own to thyself and we thank thee for thy promises in this regard help us to have confidence in thy working and in nothing else in christ jesus name we pray